Welcome back to another episode of the Leading Saints podcast. If you've enjoyed content on this podcast, it's important that I tell you about the Leading Saints newsletter that we send out every week. This newsletter keeps you up to date on all the current Leading Saints content releases, including podcasts, articles, online events, and even live events that might be happening in your own area. In this newsletter, we also recommend some past episodes and written articles that you don't want to miss. Each week, we include additional leadership perspectives and thoughts that you can only find in the weekly newsletter, so you definitely don't want to miss out. To subscribe to the weekly newsletter, simply text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe. Again, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe so you don't miss any future Leading Saints content. I'm Vanessa Brooks. I'm from Ecuador and I support Leading Saints. I am just grateful for all the valuable information and knowledge that they're sharing with us to help us become better disciples of Jesus Christ. It has really helped me to learn to find better ways, new ways to worship the Lord and also to minister other people. So I've grown a lot and I'm just always looking forward to the next episode. And it's just so informative and inspiring. It has uplifted me so much. So thank you so much for all you're doing. Hey, did you know that Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really is. And I'm Kurt Frankham. I'm the host of the Leading Saints podcast. We actually aim for this mission by creating content. That's what Leading Saints is. We are a content machine. And we do that through this podcast. We have uh, online resources at leadingsaints.org, articles, virtual summits and conferences. We've got a weekly newsletter that goes out. And so Make sure that you're plugged into all of these ways that we put out content and you're going to hopefully like most of it. Maybe you'll disagree with some of it, but that's okay. That's how we learn. That's how we process information and maybe gain a deeper insight on our own accord by considering all sorts of different opinions and perspectives when it comes to leadership. Now, I must say happy Easter to all of you. We have general conference coming up. That's always a great time to have Easter as well. And I just love Easter. Obviously, we love Jesus here, the crucifixion, the resurrection. I mean, the whole package. It is awesome. And I'm so grateful for for Christ in my life personally. And I'm sure you share that faith. And I don't typically, you know, a lot of other podcasts, they'll have like a, some Christmas-themed episodes around Christmas or Easter-themed episodes around Easter. And I, <laughs> I don't have my act together well enough to think that far ahead. I just want to interview really interesting people about leadership concepts. But this episode is actually a very much an Easter-themed episode because I interview John Hilton, who is the author of Considering the Cross, How Calvary Connects Us with Christ. Now, he isn't just an author. He is also an associate professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University. John has a master's degree from Harvard and a PhD from BYU, both in education. John is the author of The Founder of Our Peace and many other books, audio recordings, and articles. He loves teaching, reading, snowboarding, traveling, serving, and spending time with his family. He and his wife, Lanny, have six children. And John is a close friend of mine. He has been on the the podcast many times before, actually was the most downloaded guest of 2020. We'll link to those things and uh, 
this is a great conversation about the crucifixion and how we can infuse our leadership with the doctrine of the crucifixion and why it's so important and how sometimes we sort of diminish it unintentionally and how we can bring it more towards the forefront will bless all of our lives. So here is my interview with Professor John Hilton, the author of Considering the Cross. All right, today I have the opportunity to sit down with uh, Professor John Hilton. How are you, John? Doing great. Good. Well, we had a great 14-minute dress rehearsal where uh, we talked, had some great conversation, and then the software seemed to give out or bandwidth or something. So we're well-rehearsed. Is that right, John? We are well-rehearsed. It's going to be great. All right. So again, I want to just congratulate you on being the number one downloaded episode of 2020. You're, You're number two overall in the history of Leading Saints. If individuals have not heard the Fence Laws interview that we did, it is well worth a listen. And uh, we a lot of truth bombs in there and uh, some some perspectives that we've gotten a lot of feedback from just saying, you know, this really, this is something I've been thinking about. And I think in your book and, and research, you've, you articulate that concept well. So definitely be sure to check that out. Now, John, you've recently written a book called Considering the Cross, and uh, which is available in, in Desert Books and any bookstore where you frequent, uh, church bookstore or Amazon. And tell us, uh, what, was the, what was the question that you were trying to answer in writing, considering the cross? So I, I think as I was looking at my own practice of teaching the Savior's Atonement, I realized that whenever I taught about the Savior's Atonement, I would focus on Gethsemane and then maybe say a little bit about the crucifixion and then jump ahead to the resurrection. But President James E. Faust said that any increase in our understanding of the Savior's atoning sacrifice draws us closer to Him. And I realized that there was a major part of Christ's atonement, namely his crucifixion, that I had kind of been skipping over. So it was sort of this low-hanging fruit, this amazing opportunity to take a part of his atoning sacrifice that I honestly hadn't focused on very much to study it and then as a result, draw closer to him. And what I found was that actually I and I think many other people, especially among Latter-day Saints, maybe have a tendency to discount Calvary or, or to maybe not treat it in the same way we would treat Gethsemane, whereas, in fact, the scriptures heavily emphasize the atoning significance of Christ's crucifixion. There are two passages of scripture that talk about Christ suffering for us in Gethsemane, and there's more than 50 that talk about Christ dying for our sins on the cross. And so, there's actually a scriptural emphasis here that at least I personally had missed. Yeah. And that's an interesting concept that I really appreciate, especially in the first part of your book, as you sort of unpack this concept of some of these cultural practices we have that we sort of resist the cross or a symbol of the cross, or we feel like that's not us, that's other Christian religions or evangelicals or Catholics. And for some reason in our cultural practice or belief, we've had this competition come up between Calvary and Gethsemane that they were almost like two separate events when in reality, they are all part of Christ's atonement. And so what would you say to that leader? Because the typical, you know, we we default to these phrases or concepts that we learn from a young age of saying, no, John, we believe in a living Christ, not the crucified cross. And and so we want to resist that crucified cross because we want to emphasize the, the uh, living Christ. Maybe that's where that competition between these two locations come from. But how do you respond to those that want to, and you want to emphasize the living Christ? So first of all, there's no doubt that we believe in the living Christ. And without the living Christ, our hopes, our dreams would all be dashed. There's, there's no point in Gethsemane or Calvary if we don't have an empty garden tomb. 
I think what it is, is it's stepping back and realizing that it's not either or, just like it's not either Gethsemane or Calvary, it's both. It's not just the living Christ, it's also the loving Christ. And if you think about that phrase, the loving Christ, Jesus Christ himself personally defined his greatest act of love as his crucifixion. He said, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And so it's not, well, is it the loving Christ or the living Christ? It's both. You can't have one without the other. And so a focus on the love that Jesus manifests him, himself and the love of his father shown on the cross doesn't in any way detract from the importance of the living Christ. It gives us an additional lens, an additional way to draw closer to the Savior. Yeah, go ahead. Maybe one thing that we can say is that it is really important to separate the issue of the cross as a symbol versus the doctrinal significance of Christ's crucifixion. And just as one example of many we could cite, Joseph Smith in his writings and sermons, he never talks about Christ suffering for our sins in Gethsemane. Not once. He only, in fact, mentions Gethsemane one time, and that's as an example of doing the will of the Father like Christ did in Gethsemane. Whereas he talks about the Savior's crucifixion more than 30 times, including several references specifically to Christ dying for our sins. In fact, he says that one of the fundamental principles of our religion is that Jesus died. And so the doctrinal significance of Christ's crucifixion is unquestionable. Jesus himself said, I was crucified for the sins of the world. The death wasn't just an afterthought. Some people have said, well, Jesus overcame spiritual death in Gethsemane and overcame physical death on the cross, kind of separating the two. Elder Gerald Lund referred to that as a doctrinal error. So we, do, we need to be very clear that whatever we might think about the cross as a symbol, there's a doctrinal power and reality associated with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And, you know, when, we, when we're dealing with such doctrines that are just enormous and hard to capture in our mortal uh, mentality, you know, the, the suffering, the atonement of Jesus Christ, like to really understand that is difficult. So naturally, as mortals, we sort of want to package them in a box or a statement or or, you know, separating to like, well, this, you know, the Gethsemane was part of, was for this and the Calvary was for this other thing. And, and you know, I remember statements from well-meaning, I don't know, there were Sunday school teachers or seminary teachers of, of saying like, yes, the, the crucifixion was horrible and, and awful and painful, but that would never measure up to what happened in Gethsemane. But what happened in Gethsemane also is sort of hard to conceptualize. It's just sort of this thing that happened, you know, bleeding from every pore and wow, that must hurt, but I still don't, it's hard to relate where laying a man on a cross, putting spikes through his hands and feet in, in ways that are just hard to comprehend. There's almost this, this pull of salvation in that, that sacrifice because it was an act that can actually be unpacked a little bit more and, and articulated clearer. Yeah, clearly we can't comprehend what Christ experienced either in the cross or in Gethsemane. But I think we can do as much as we can within our own abilities. And like you said, in, in many ways, the crucifixion is easier to approach. At least we have maybe some ideas of what the scourging might have entailed. Mm -hmm. But going back to the idea that, well, whatever happened in Calvary could in no way compare with what happened in Gethsemane, that's just simply not true. President Nelson in 2018 talked about what Christ experienced in Gethsemane, and then he said that all of these sufferings were intensified 
as Christ was cruelly crucified on Calvary's cross. So there's an intensification of whatever Christ was experiencing in Gethsemane on the cross. And again, that's not to like make a comparison or to a competition between the two, but it's just to make clear that you'll hear sometimes people say, well, lots of people were crucified. What's unique about Jesus is Gethsemane. That also is, it misses the point. Jesus wasn't just crucified. He was crucified for our sins. There's a toning significance that's happening on the cross. And in this experience of suffering for sins that we sometimes exclusively associate with Gethsemane is taking place at Calvary as well. Yeah, I love that. And so, you know, one thing I'm learning here is just sort of, because I want to get to the, any advice you have on for leaders or individuals or teachers who are trying to, you know, obviously we hope that we're teaching about this, the the atonement and Christ's sacrifice and his crucifixion and 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 Gethsemane as well. But maybe there's some pitfalls there that we can fall into. And one of those is, is maybe not turning it into a competition when you're teaching these things or, or separating them. Any other advice as far as for a leader who wants to teach this doctrine in a way without maybe creating these false concepts that, that don't help? Well, I think there are actually a lot of powerful pastoral principles that we can teach from the crucifixion that might not come to the front of our minds if we're maybe putting the crucifixion on the side. So I, I think there's lots of situations, and, and maybe we can talk about some of these later if I'm I'm helping a person who's struggling to overcome sin or struggling to, I don't know, feel confidence in their lives, they've had some serious setbacks or trials. But one additional major opportunity, I think, is to use the cross and the crucifixion as a bridge building tool. Hmm. So I served my mission in Denver, Colorado. And honestly, if I were on the streets or knocking on doors and I saw someone wearing a cross necklace, I would think of them as the other, like, oh, that's that's different. They're not my kind of Christian. Whereas if I were a missionary today, I'd be so excited. I'd be like, oh, hey, I see you're wearing a cross necklace. Like, Tell me what the crucifixion of Jesus Christ means to you. And after they share, I'd say, well, I've got this amazing book here. It's called the Book of Mormon. Let, let me read to you what Jesus taught the people in ancient America. He said, my father sent me that I might be lifted up upon the cross. Would you like to learn more about what Jesus taught about his crucifixion? And I mean, it's this amazing bridge building between us and other Christians. Whereas I think, well, I know for a fact that many Christians today, to some extent, view members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as the other, because we don't use the cross in our worship. And some have even used this to say that we don't believe in the atonement or we don't attach atoning significance to what happened on Calvary. So I, I think there's actually a great opportunity here for us to build bridges with people of other faiths as we highlight the things that we do believe in common about the atoning value of Christ's crucifixion. Yeah. And really, you know, I remember just various teachings that I would get from other missionaries on my mission that, you know, when someone brings up the cross or asks about the cross, you know, you can default to things like, well, if a loved one was killed by a gun, like, would you wear that gun around your neck? You know, and now that I think back and reflect on this, like, that dialogue isn't necessarily helpful in winning them over to uniting just in a foundational faith of Jesus Christ, right? To say that you're sort of off when you wear that cross and that's okay, but we've sort of found a higher law that that we're living by, right? Right. And I I know that this is the Leading Saints podcast. It's not like history (laughs) podcast, but what's super interesting is that that exact idea you said, would you wear a a gun or a dagger around your neck? That's been around for centuries. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of people don't realize is 
during the Protestant Reformation times, there was a big break in how people viewed the cross. And so for centuries, it was the cross was basically a Catholic thing, whereas Baptists or Methodists, including many Puritans who came over, like the pilgrims who are coming over, reject the symbol of the cross. So in the 1800s, Joseph Smith isn't thinking about, well, should we have crosses? Should we not have crosses? It just wasn't part of his cultural context. The Catholic Church was very small in America at that time. What's interesting is the cross becomes a universal Christian symbol in America in the 1850s through the 1870s. And you even have written documents talking about how the symbol of the cross is unifying Christians together. But meanwhile, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is in Utah and is not participating in this near universal adoption of the cross. So some of these kind of ideas that to us sound like, oh yeah, this sounds really interesting. Like, would you wear a dagger around your neck? These are not new ideas. They've been around for centuries and they were actually anti-Catholic rhetoric that Protestants were saying in the 1800s and even earlier. Yeah. And that's really helpful just to see how these cultural developments or, or the, the, the narrative of culture just sometimes forms what we think is doctrine or highlights certain beliefs that weren't highlighted before or for, for whatever reason. And that can sometimes mold how we, how we approach the doctrine or, or teach it to others, which maybe isn't helpful in the end. And a lot too just goes back to how one views the symbol of the cross. My colleague, Eric Huntsman, tells a story where he was talking with a Presbyterian friend and says, well, we focus on the living Christ. And she was completely offended. She's like, well, I believe in the living Christ. Look at the cross I'm wearing. It's empty. I'm focused on Jesus lives. He's not on the cross anymore. Now, there's a difference, of course, between a cross and a crucifix, a crucifix being a, a symbol of a cross with Christ on it. But if we were to talk to perhaps a Catholic who's wearing a crucifix, I don't think they would say, yeah, I'm worshiping the dead Christ. They would say, well, for me, this is an image of love. This is showing me Jesus loved me so much. This is what he was willing to do for me. And so when we can see the beauty in other people, how they might view a symbol, that can open doors of conversation. And you know what? There's lots of opportunities. I could be wrong. I have to double check, but I believe in 12 different states in the United States and in several countries around the world, Good Friday is either a national or a state holiday. Well, what a great opportunity to do an interfaith service, to join forces with a local Catholic church or another organization to say, could we get together and celebrate our joint appreciation for what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. There's yeah. lots of opportunities for bridge building here. Yeah. So talk to me in uh, in the context of just our our faith traditions. You know, you mentioned other faith traditions, you know, have maybe more focus on Good Friday and these things, but, you know, as a leader, maybe as a bishop running a, a ward or a Relief Society president, uh, you know, what are some things that we can do to, that, to better emphasize, again, not the symbol of, of the cross, but the events that took, took place on the cross and, and why that is so important? Well, I think that one, one possibility is for us to, to teach directly from the scriptures about the crucifixion and some of the lessons that they have. For example, and I've actually done this with uh, different classes that I've taught. If I, say a, if I ask a question like, what would you say is the purpose of Christ's atonement? The most often given answer is to atone for our sins. And that's 100% true and correct. The scriptures also give multiple additional reasons for Christ's crucifixion. For example, in John chapter 12, Jesus says that when I am lifted up from the cross, I will draw all people to me. And then he says, now the prince of this world shall be cast out. In other words, 
Jesus is saying on the cross, I'm going to get a victory over the devil. And the apostle Paul uses that exact same phraseology. He talks about the triumph Mm -hmm. of the cross. And so if we were to maybe, I'm just kind of imagining myself as an elders quorum president, and I'm talking with a member who's very scared or concerned about some problems that he's facing. And maybe things are looking really bad financially for him right now. If we can understand the triumph of the cross, Jesus won the victory. Maybe that's a way for me to help this member friend have some hope. Imagine, I might say to him, imagine that you're watching a sporting event and you really care about the outcome. Your team is behind, you're super stressed. What if you had an absolute guarantee that no matter how far behind your team was, no matter how many injuries they had, your team would win? Well, you'd obviously relax, right? I could enjoy the game more. And the punchline is Jesus wins. Paul says he triumphed on the cross. Jesus says that himself. And so whatever difficulties or challenges we have, I think we can have faith and confidence knowing that he's victorious. Yeah. So I want to make sure we have plenty of time to to dive into some of these leadership concepts in, in the context of the cross and the crucifixion and Christ's suffering there. When it comes to you know, repentance, whether that's in the context of partaking the sacrament or just repenting every day, like how can a leader better rely on the events on Calvary to better help an individual repent? So, I mean, here's what, let's imagine that we're, we're talking to someone who's feeling really discouraged, like I'm worthless. Look at all these terrible things I've done. There's no way that God is going to love me still or reach out to me. Well, maybe one of the first places that we might want to turn is Romans chapter five. And because, you know, a lot of the people that we're going to be talking to won't have been reading Romans chapter five recently, but let's take them to Romans chapter five, verse eight, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul's telling us, Christ didn't wait till you were perfect to die for you. He died for you while you were a sinner. And that is how God is sending his love to you. Or we might take them to Doctrine and Covenants section 18. Verse 10 is really famous. Remember the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. But notice the very next phrase, for behold, the Lord, your Redeemer, suffered death in the flesh. That's the proof of your worth is great. And I think connecting those two clauses is really important. The worth of souls is great in the sight of God. Why? What's the proof? Look, see, the Lord, your Redeemer, suffered death in the flesh. Can you see how much value you have to Jesus? And I think when we can kind of understand that Jesus did not give up on us on the cross, he didn't quit in Gethsemane, he's not giving up on us now today. That can be a message of hope and encouragement to someone who feels like, man, it's too late for me. I'm off the Lord's team. Yeah. And that's what I love so much about as I was reading your reading the book and I shared a little bit of this on Instagram, like just the epiphany I had. And it's one of those epiphanies I've known all along, but just reading in this context is so helpful because as a bishop, I remember those moments of like, all right, someone's trying to repent. Well, let's make sure that they know that that's really bad what they did. And so, okay, I, I lectured on that for about 10 minutes and then let's maybe get some internet filters or let's focus on the behaviors and how can you not do that again? Right. And I mean, I don't want to shame them, but still this is heavy stuff. We have to really focus on it. And and it sort of becomes this, this emphasis on behaviors. And we know, yeah, we know that I've got the atonement to the side here. We're going to use that in just a minute here, but let's make sure that you, you know, but as I went through this and I feel like the greatest power with the crucifixion is like, if we had a way to put an individual in a time machine and take them back 
to that day when Christ was crucified. And just the symbolism of those people who were there at the foot of the cross and the the connection they felt to the Savior by literally witnessing him die for them. And and if we can grab someone by the hand and, and help them through just sitting with that suffering, that death, and making space for it, like there's as I've gone there, there's nothing I want more than to change, to do better. Like I don't need some lecture on what's good or bad or what I should do less of. Like I just want to do more good. And that's what I appreciated so much about the way you took us through that from the history, the narratives to what was going on to how it happened was so powerful in just helping an individual sit with a crucifixion, look at it, consider it, and realize that was for me. Then I want to change. Yeah, I think you're exactly right that it goes back to what President Faust said that as we understand, increase in our understanding of any aspect of the Savior's atonement, we'll draw closer to Him. So one of the best things that we can do is, is help those that we're working with understand the Savior's atonement better. And since many won't have studied or focused on the cross, that may be some, some great opportunities for them to really understand what the Savior is doing. Yeah. And as you're going through those scriptures, I don't know if you mentioned this one but or in the book, but one of my favorite scriptures in, in relation to the redemptive power of, of Christ's death and the crucifixion is in Romans 6. Five and six, it says, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. I just love that visual of like every Sunday we're like dragging our old man, our old self into sacrament meeting and be like, All right, I got another one that needs to be on that cross. I got to get rid of this old man. I want to be new again through Christ. It's awesome. Yeah, that, I mean, perfect. That's a powerful visualization. I love that. Yeah. Anything else in the, in the context of the crucifixion, the cross, helping an individual through the repentance process that maybe you haven't mentioned yet? So here's, here's one that is one of those lessons that's actually not, it, it's what's not said in the scriptures that I think speaks more loudly than what is. So mm. we, we know the general storyline in Mark chapter 14 Peter denies Jesus three times, and then he goes out and he weeps bitterly. Now, imagine that we're reading or hearing the gospel of Mark for the first time. We're looking to see what happens to Peter in chapter 15 at the crucifixion, and Peter is never mentioned. So by the time we get to resurrection morning, maybe us as a reader, we're thinking, wow, it's Peter's gone. You know, he denied Christ, wept bitterly, and walked right out of town. He's off. He's out of here. But in chapter 16, verse 7, the young man at the tomb specifically says to the women there, go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that Jesus goes before you to Galilee. And I love how Peter is specifically called out to say, you're still on the team. And we might have, we know that Peter's going to make a comeback. We know about the book of Acts. So we might just kind of miss that message. But I think that's a really helpful message to share. Peter has made some mistakes. And we often will, you know, maybe say, well, maybe Jesus commanded Peter to deny him. And, and while that's possible, if we look at the original text, it doesn't seem likely. What, what seems likely is that Peter really is faced with peer pressure and he stumbles. And however you read, I mean, you can read it both ways, but. I kind of like that latter way because sometimes I stumble and it's nice for me to be able to see that I've got a friend in Peter. He stumbles, but he makes a comeback. And I think that's another message of hope that we can give. Yeah, that's uh, that's powerful. And and even the the one that, that hit my heart directly was the, and I don't think this was a, 
uh, a parallel that you, you came up with, but you shared a few quotes as far as this, the concept of Barabbas and this, you know, this uh, individual who, who was released so that the savior could be crucified. And just to put yourself in his shoes to realize, wow, like I was about to be crucified. Like it was over for me. And now I'm going home to my family and, and to, to witness the savior being taken away by the crowd or the soldiers and saying what well, he did that for me. And I'm, I get to go home now. Like that to me is just so uh, redemptive in the context of repentance of like the, the sting of, of sin will never reach me because he took it all. And it's so encouraging. You know, one more too, that comes to your mind, thinking of people like Barabbas who are criminals, Christ is crucified between two criminals. And one of the statements that he made on the cross really stands out to me. So you've got one of the criminals who's kind of yelling at Christ and saying, hey, if you're really the savior, save us. And the other thief says, don't you fear God? Because we've justly been condemned, but this man's done nothing wrong. And then he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' response is, verily I say unto you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, when I was growing up, anytime I heard, heard this, I think I only heard it with like a big asterisk next to it. And then the whole conversation was about, <laughs> now remember, you have to be baptized in order to go to heaven. There's no such thing as deathbed repentance. What Jesus really was saying is you'll go to spirit prison. And maybe if you're lucky, you can hear about the gospel there. But first of all, we don't know that whether or not the thief had ever been baptized. Second of all, look at what he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Doesn't that kind of sound like Alma the Younger? another person that was on a bad path. And he said, Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me. And Jesus did have mercy on him. In fact, Joseph Smith, he gives a specific quote about this passage that I had never heard growing up. And he makes it clear that the thief isn't automatically going to be exalted, but he kind of rephrases the savior statement to be today, I will be with you in paradise. And then I will teach you all these things. So the way that Joseph Smith frames it is Jesus is saying, I will personally teach you. And we might say, wait, 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 well, but doesn't Jesus like organize the righteous and they go do all the teaching? And I'm sure that's for the most part, but based on what Joseph Smith said, maybe Jesus personally does teach one or two people. And I, for one, think it would be an amazing painting. If there's any painters listening today to see a <laughs> painting of Jesus and the thief on the cross together in the spirit world. And to me, what this is, is where I used to kind of hear it and think about it as a, a message about like, well, you got to get baptized. There's no deathbed repentance. Now I see it as the Savior's grace and mercy and love. It's extended to everyone. And this man who's, who's at a bitter moment, he's reaching out to Jesus and Jesus is reaching back. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. And I hope that somebody wrote those, those teachings down and we'll get this additional book of scriptures when we get to the other side, right? That, that's awesome. And again, as before I move on here, I just want to, because I remember being that bishop who just like, okay, this is the fifth time I met with this guy or gal, and I don't know what else to say. And, and I've, you know, they keep messing up. And, but again, your job is to like help convince them that the grace of Jesus Christ even reaches them. Like if it reached the thief on the cross with him, like it can reach you and we can do this as many times as you want. I'm here to instill hope and create space of wow, look what Christ did for you. Isn't that great? And you're going to probably come back in a week and you'll mess up again. And we're going to have the same conversation because the atonement is so good. Like Christ is so good and reaches all of us. And then they walk out with hope rather than, okay, I need to 
got my three steps. I need to text him every night. I need to do this. Like it's that installation of hope that, and you give such great examples of scriptures you can read, stories you can tell, you know, parallels you can draw that just instill hope in that repentance process because repentance should be about hope. And maybe some of this too is helpful for the Relief Society president or the bishop who's working with someone who's kind of just struggling over and over again. And you're right, it can get exhausting. You're, you're like, oh man, do we need to go meet again? Like I got my own family to take care of or whatever the situation might be. Yeah. But we can, I think, be personally strengthened as we see what Christ is doing and no one's appreciating it, right? You don't see anyone at the cross being like, Lord, bless you. Thank you for what you're doing. You're the greatest Lord. I mean, people are mocking him. They're torturing him. He's completely abandoned. I mean, and so I guess for me then, if I'm feeling frustrated in my ministry, like, wow, this is hard. People don't really appreciate what I'm doing. I just have to look to the cross of Christ to realize, oh, okay. I'm not even close to following in his footsteps. I, I can I can keep on going. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where I wanted to pivot to next as far as just helping people with challenging circumstances. I remember one person in particular, uh, there's a mother, who, her nine-year-old son who passed away suddenly. And I'm the bishop. I go over there. It's like, oh, like there's so much, I'm supposed to say these things. I'm supposed to comfort. I don't know what to say, but thankfully I was, I was actually reading Brad Wilcox's book, The Continuous Atonement. And she looked at me and she said, am I being punished? Like, why is this happening? And the words of Brad Wilcox came to my mind and I said, you're not being punished. You're being sanctified. And I'm like, oh, okay. I think that worked. That landed good. Cause, but in those circumstances where it's just like, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to do this. So how can we turn towards Calvary and the doctrines there to help comfort people or help them through difficult circumstances? Anything that you haven't said about that? Yeah. I mean, there's a really beautiful there's a really beautiful way of looking at that Elder Worthland described in his talk, Sunday Will Come. Mm -hmm. And there's no magic words that you can use at any time. But one thing that I think is helpful is try to erase everything that you know about Christ's death and resurrection and just sit there with Mary Magdalene or Mary, the mother of Jesus or Nicodemus. Sit there at the crucifixion scene. Watch your Savior die. And as far as you know, this is it. It's over. We have 2,000 years of history of the resurrection. So we're like, of course, it's going to be resurrected. Like, stay tuned, 48 hours from now. But they didn't. They seem to be unaware of the saying and what all of Christ's teachings had meant. So Christ is buried. And when I'm teaching or focusing on this, I almost always jump straight from the burial to the resurrection. Hmm. But I think there's a great lesson. Let's sit in Saturday. If Christ is crucified on Friday representing maybe the tragedies of our life. And he's resurrected on Sunday, representing the miracles, the miraculous recovery, or being able to look back and see how, even though it was hard, we were able to make it through. In the middle is Saturday. And I think we spend a lot of our lives in Saturday, in the middle between yesterday's tragedy and tomorrow's triumph. But just seeing what those early disciples did when they were in the middle on Saturday, they stayed close to Jesus. And we know that because they're there resurrection morning. They didn't, they didn't leave town, which might've been a reasonable thing to do considering the fact that the Romans had just killed their master, right? Their leader. And so who are they going to come for next, right? This is a scary time, but even in the midst of the difficulty, they stayed close to Jesus. And I think some form of what we've just been talking about could be helpful to share with someone who's in the middle of a difficult time. And what Elder Worthland said was, 
And I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. He said, we're all going to have our shattering Fridays where everything is so discouraging, but Sunday will come. And knowing that Sunday came for these early disciples and it will come for us, I think can be a message of hope when we're stuck in the middle. Yeah. That's such a powerful concept because again, putting ourselves in that, in the presence of that moment where they didn't fully understand, you know, it's not like they wait around like any minute. Yeah. He's going to walk out of that tomb. Here we go. Right. They didn't fully understand that. And many of them question, you know, I thought, I thought he was supposed to over, you know, overtake the government and be, you know, take down the Romans. And now he's gone. Like really there wasn't a clear ending to this story that, that restored hope, but, but it came. And actually you, you just paraphrased from Luke chapter 24. This would be another great story to share. So the, the two disciples who are on the road to Emmaus, they see a stranger. It's really Jesus, but they don't recognize him. And Jesus says, what's wrong? Why are you guys so sad? And they're like, what are you talking about? Like, you don't even know what's going on. And he's like, well, what do you mean? What's going on? And they explain, <laughs> you know, about the crucifixion. And then look at this phrase, the, again, that you had just kind of paraphrased. It's Luke chapter 24, verse 21. But we trusted. Notice the past tense. We had hoped that he was the one. We trusted but I guess we were wrong. And I think it's pretty powerful to see that in the very moment they were losing hope, Jesus was walking with them. And I think that's a powerful passage that we can share with those who are losing hope to say, just like they thought it was over, Jesus was with them even in that moment. And Jesus and Heavenly Father are with you even in your difficult times. Yeah. And again, I love that creating space and sitting with them on Saturday or when before the resurrection, it's easy to jump towards the, the resurrection and say, yeah, but look, I mean, he overcame it. Don't you feel better now? But just like sitting there, just like Christ could have walked up and said, hey, guys, I'm here. Like I'm resurrected. But instead, he's like, no, I'm going to ask some questions and they're not going to realize it's me, but it'll help them sit with the reality of the hopelessness, which brings greater redemptive power to the event of the resurrection. It's awesome. It's awesome. I'm going to side note here. I just want to pivot towards real quick is it's difficult at times to deal with the crucifixion because it is so gory, right? Like we are not the type of people who line up for the gory movies at the movie theater. Like I want to look away. I don't want to consider it. Like the Gethsemane is so ambiguous that I can sort of be there. Like, I don't know what happened. Bleed from every pore. Yeah. I, yeah. That it, let's be there. But when we go to Calvary, it's just hard to be there mentally or spiritually. And so how would you respond to that as far as the, it's hard to consider these doctrines when they include such gory nature. So that I think this is a really interesting question. And my theory is that it's sort of an individual approach. Maybe some of us have a reticence to view those kinds of images and we then project that onto everybody else. But I think there certainly are some times and maybe for some people where it's actually very helpful to think about a graphic image of a crucified Christ. Just a couple of examples, Elder Dubay of the 70 describes what he calls one of the spiritually defining moments of his life. He was 10 years old in his native country of Zimbabwe at a Catholic church, and he's just walking, looking at all the paintings, Christ's birth, different things. And then he looks up and he sees the picture of Christ being crucified. And he said, tears came to his eyes and he thought, hey, he really went through a lot just for me. Now, some of us might say, well, you shouldn't show pictures of a crucifixion to children because that's going to scar them. And certainly there, there might be some pictures that are too graphic. Mm -hmm. And there might be some age of children where you know, we have to kind of think carefully about what we're doing. But here, Elder Dubé as a 10-year-old is having 
one of the spiritually defining moments of his life as he sees the image of a crucified savior. Another, to me, really powerful example that I share in the book has to do with a woman who experienced some severe trauma in her life. And she doesn't go into the details of whether it was abuse or what it was, but it was clearly beyond just you know a mild bad day. And she talks about how she knew in her mind that Jesus suffered for her, but it was when she mentally could see a true image of the crucified Christ. And she talks about how like usually our, our pictures of Christ being crucified are, are PG, Christ is maybe frowning, you know, tiny bit of blood. But the reality of the image would have been much more bloody, Christ screaming out in agony. And although that's an image that I don't think we seek out generally, when she saw that image, she connected with Jesus in a new and a real way. And she said, all of a sudden, I realized that Jesus understands me. Maybe one more example, and I, I'm not trying to be insensitive to listeners who you know, may, may have tender feelings and not want to think about these kinds of things. But Corey Tenboom, uh, many people have probably read her book, The Hiding Place. She was a Christian who was helping Jews during World War II, and eventually she's found out and she's sent to a concentration camp. And she and her sister endured all sorts of horrible abuses including once a week, they and all the other women in their building would have to take off all their clothes and be inspected by the guards. And she talks about how humiliating and degrading this was. But one day the thought comes to her mind, they took away Jesus's clothes as well. He was crucified naked. And just parenthetically, there is actually historical evidence that many people at least were crucified naked. We don't know specifically whether Jesus was wearing a loincloth or not, but it's definitely a possibility. So this idea comes to her mind, he was naked when they crucified him. And all of a sudden she didn't feel shame in this Mm -hmm. difficult circumstances. There was some solidarity that she felt with Jesus Christ. So again, I'm not recommending that we try to push gory details on everyone, but I think we should acknowledge that for people who have experienced extreme pain, it may be helpful to recognize that Jesus has experienced extreme pain and maybe you or I can't relate to them, but Jesus can. Yeah. You just said a great buzzword we have at Leading Saints, that's solidarity. We did a whole episode about the concept of solidarity and the power of it. And really that is why the atonement, the crucifixion, his suffering is so powerful is it takes us to a place of solidarity with him. I remember being a young missionary, just horribly homesick, like trying to get used to mission life and getting letters from my sister, who was also, uh, you know, early, a few years earlier had also been a very homesick missionary. And just the way she articulated, it's like she was reading my mind. I'm like, she gets it. She's been here. She understands me. And it, and it got, like, got me through the day. Like it, it, it gave me power to move forward. Right. And so when we get there with the savior, it's so powerful and, you know, as a leader, you may go into somebody, you know, visit someone with stage four cancer and you're like, yeah, you know, I had a cousin once that had the same cancer. And so I got an idea. It must be pretty tough. And they're like, what are you talking about? You don't know what this is like, right? We, we almost try and force a connection that, right? But instead, when they can sit with the atonement and, and the detail you go into where, you know, even where how they nailed feet to the cross was just so like, it was graphic, but it's sort of like, wow, that, that would really, really hurt. And again, it takes me to a place where I'm just like, wow. And again, he did it for me. Like he wants to understand me. So I'm just thinking of people who are maybe going through a very physical trial, 
whether it's cancer or surgeries or whatever, and saying like, you should really study these things and, and see if you can find a connection there with the savior because he experienced severe physical pain as well. Yeah. And, and that, of course, it's still hard. It's hard for the right. individual. It's hard as the leader. Like, There's no magic bullet to make these conversations be easy. But I think that, that they do find a home and a power in the Savior's atonement. Yeah. Let's talk about as far as like preparing individuals for ordinances, whether it's an endowment or the sealing ordinance. Is there anything we can draw upon from the doctrine of the, the crucifixion and the suffering that happened there to maybe help an individual move forward with these these ordinances? So the the endowment itself, clearly the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is central to the Savior's endowment. Or excuse me. Yeah, the Savior's crucifixion is central to the temple endowment. Right. There are lots of ways that we can see that. One, I think, kind of basic example is that in the endowment room, you have the altar of the temple. And the altar is clearly a symbol of death. And we see in the book of Jacob that Abraham sacrificing or almost sacrificing his son, Isaac, on the altar was a symbol of the death of Christ. We see that also in the book of Moses as Adam and Eve built an altar and offered sacrifice, that this thing was in similitude of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So just the visual place of an altar in the endowment room is a reminder. I think that maybe as a, as a church leader, one great opportunity that we have is to talk to those who are preparing to be sealed in the temple, especially if they've already been endowed and seen a sealing ordinance, that we can kind of talk them through some additional symbolism. And again, it might be more meaningful for those who have been endowed and seen a sealing ceremony. But if you can visualize a, a sealing room, in the center of a sealing room is an altar, again, a symbol of the death of Jesus Christ. And Elder Bruce Hafen talked about performing a sealing ordinance. And he said he invited the husband and wife to the altar to join hands at the altar of the temple. And whether you think about the altar or the hands that are clasped together on the altar, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is literally at the center of a sealing covenant. And I think if we could share that, and I have shared this with people who are preparing to be sealed in the temple, it can be a powerful moment. I've seen eyes just kind of widen a little bit and they say, oh, wow, like, so Christ in a sense is crucified with my marriage. Yeah, you and your husband together, we could say in a sense that Christ is nailing you to his cross. And to me, I think this opens up the door for a completely different kind of love in marriage. Jesus on the cross, he wasn't looking at the people and saying like, oh, you're so attractive to me. Like I'm in love with you. No, he's looking at people who are ridiculing him, who are treating him terribly, but he's still dying to make them holy. And I'm not in this thought suggesting that anyone should remain in an abusive relationship or that we should tolerate abuse. I do think though that sometimes when we have little friction points, so someone who's about to get sealed in the temple may find out sometime in the next year or week of their marriage that their spouse isn't as perfect as they thought. And there's irritations that come <laughs> up. And rather than get mad and quit, we can say, oh, wait, I'm going to love my spouse with the same kind of love Jesus manifests for me on the cross because his crucifixion is a key part of my marriage covenant. And that's an opportunity, I think, where as the crucifixion becomes more meaningful to me, then my marriage covenants become more meaningful because I see the connection within them. Yeah. No, I love that so much. And, you know, again, that the, the concept of 
that there's sanctification in suffering, right? And and sometimes that suffering is in our own life, the trials we experience, we we suffer and that turns us towards God and Christ and we find sanctification there. But the cross of Christ's suffering there, it like infused all these ordinances with that power of sanctification to help us reach a higher level, right? To live up to all the words we hear during that that sealing ordinance and, and there's power in that. And so by focusing there, it's easy to sort of, again, dismiss it. Yeah, you know, you've been to a sealing ordinance, you sort of know what's going to happen. And, you know, we encourage you to to love each other and do the dishes every once in a while. Like those are, that's great advice, but to really bring out the crucifixion in that ordinance is, is powerfully sanctifying. Yeah. And, and it connects with what Paul's marriage advice was in Ephesians chapter five, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So as we see how it is that Christ is giving himself for the church, what that entails, that then is a model for how spouses are to love each other. Yeah. Awesome. Let's wrap up as far as focusing on just, you know, bringing Christ's crucifixion into our personal worship and devotion. Because at the end of the book, you you list off a variety of ideas and thoughts of, of maybe doing this. And so what, what advice? I mean, if someone's listening, thinking, okay, I want to, especially during this Easter season, I want to really infuse my life with the crucifixion and the power that came through that sacrifice. What advice would you give them? So there's lots of things that we can do. One piece of advice we talked earlier about Good Friday. So Good Friday is the Friday before Easter. And that's probably an opportunity that many of us have to turn our thoughts to the Savior's atoning sacrifice. And there are lots of ways that we could do that. Not everyone has the luxury of being able to take a day off of work, but we might be able to get up a little bit earlier or have an evening devotional where we reflect. Um, Part of it, I think, is just taking time to read these scriptural accounts more carefully. I've created a little handout, and we can link to this on the show notes or within the podcast, but where I've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's accounts of the crucifixion side by side. So you can kind of carefully read and see the similarities and differences in what they say. And while the general storyline is similar, there are some differences. And and sometimes seeing those differences really can make something pop out. Here's just one really small example. But as Jesus Christ is carrying his cross, and then he needs help from Simon, Luke notes that Simon carries the cross while following Jesus. So Jesus is in the lead, and Simon carrying the cross is behind. And if you notice that little detail that Simon is following Jesus, it may remind you that earlier in Luke, Jesus had talked about people taking up their cross and following him. So by reading carefully, I see this new detail. Okay, I've got a cross and I'm carrying it, but am I carrying my cross while following Jesus? Mm. Or am I carrying my cross with bitterness and anger and not following Jesus? And so there are dozens of rich insights that we could have just by taking the time to carefully read these chapters that maybe sometimes we've kind of rushed past in our effort to get to the resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. You inspired me uh, to do several things. You know, you talk about looking for a replica of the crown of thorns, right? Mm. So sure enough on Amazon, they got one, John, I bought it and I even found a replica uh, crucifixion nails. Right. And so I like this approach where I want my kids, you know, my six-year-old, I want to, I want them to hold the nails. I want them to see how, you know, how the thorn of, of crowns looked and might've felt and, and some of these things. And, and that really brings it 
to the forefront of their mind, right? It's rather than, oh, it's scripture time. I don't even know what dad is saying with these scriptures, but wow, I'm holding something and, you know, I can see Christ in this. And and even I went as far as finding a, a Good Friday service that's happening in my local area here. And and maybe that's something I can engage in and and uh, with my community, right? So yeah, no, lots, lots of ideas. So many ideas. And maybe one other that I'll mention is lately, I've noticed a lot of people are really excited about the series, The Chosen. Yeah. Maybe introducing a lot of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to a whole genre of film that we haven't been aware of. There's lots of movies about Jesus Christ that aren't produced by the church. Uh, One of my favorites is The Gospel of John. Another one is called The Son of God. And so I I think this Easter season is a great time to select a movie about Jesus Christ that we, maybe one that we haven't seen before, and maybe on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, or maybe on Good Friday or somewhere in between, we take some time to watch a movie about Jesus. And I'm not saying that, you know, movies are the answer to everything, but there is something powerful about seeing and kind of, we can read the story, but as we see the story, that also can have a powerful influence in our minds and hearts. Anything else we're missing? Concept or point, John, that uh, you want to make sure we we hit before we wrap up? Well, I just want to, I guess, to me, the most important thing is we realize that Jesus truly did this. What we're talking about is not fictional. He really died for you and me because he loves us. And the deeper that truth is embedded in our hearts, I think the, the greater ability we then have to extend love and mercy and grace to others and feel it for ourselves. Yeah. I got one more question for you, but uh, where any, obviously they can get it online or Desert Book, uh, anywhere you'd send them if they want more information about the book or even just about you. So I, I do have a website, johnhiltoniii.com slash crucifixion. And if you were to go to that page, I have lots of articles that are available for free, links to different videos. And so there's there's lots of resources on that page. You don't need to buy the book. You can go to that page and find, I think, a host of details. If there's something that we talked about earlier, for example, that there's more than 50 verses that talk about Christ's crucifixion, I, I've linked to an article that describes in detail all of those. Or if you're curious to know more about what Joseph Smith taught about Christ's crucifixion in Gethsemane, there's a link to an article about that just a host of information there if you're interested. Yeah. And, you know, I, I never want to come across as being too prescriptive in some of these sacred practices and responsibilities that leaders have. And and that being, you know, helping a bishop helping an individual through repentance. But again, I've been that bishop just sort of not sure what to say next or how to handle the situation. A book like this could be such a powerful tool to give to someone and say, hey, why don't you read this? And let's just talk about it. Let's meet a few more times. Maybe you know, cross-reference some scriptures and, and see, see what you can find. And, and that really gives a, again, allows you to create space for the crucifixion to come in and, and heal through the power of that, that suffering that the Savior did for, for all of us. So again, don't want to be too prescriptive, but I think every bishop should have a library of various books and I, uh, this would be a good one to have there. So John, the last question I have for you is just what, what final encouragement would you give to leaders as they are leading people, you know, in the context of, of the crucifixion, any final encouragement or advice you get give to them? Yeah. One, I think, source that we can draw strength from is the final seven words that Jesus said on the cross. And so if we look at Matthew, Mark, Christ makes one statement from the cross. In Luke, he makes three statements. And in John, he makes three statements. And none of them are the same except the Matthew, Mark. So there's a total of seven statements. And I'll just mention two in passing, but I think that when we look to Jesus as the ultimate leader, 
that we can find some strength and to use that phrase again, solidarity with him as we think about what he experienced. So one of the phrases, and this is the only phrase in Matthew and Mark, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think it's important for us to realize that Jesus felt abandoned and totally alone. You and I are going to feel that sometimes those who we serve are going to feel that at times and Jesus felt it. And in fact, in Matthew and Mark, that's where the book ends. When we watch a movie, it's, that's almost never the final word from the cross because they'll draw from Luke or John as well, kind of ending on a hopeful or a triumphant note. But for me, I think kind of like we talked about sitting in Saturday, it's okay to sit for a moment in the abandonment, the last word in Matthew and Mark that Christ feels and experiences. That's maybe one example. Another is the final word that Jesus says in Luke. He says, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. And I think it's interesting that that last word he says, or his last statement begins with the word Father. Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. And if we go back to the very first thing Jesus says in Luke, it's, if you remember, he's 12 years old, he's in the temple and his parents are like, what are you doing? And he says, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? So from the beginning to the end, his first words to his last, Jesus is showing us a focus on his father. And I think ultimately that's our responsibility as leaders. We're trying our very best to do the will of the Father. It's going to be hard. We're going to make mistakes. But as we keep trying, we can kind of have that in the forefront of our minds. We're not our own agents trying to do our own thing. We're trying to do our Father's business. And as we do, He will help us. That concludes my interview with Professor John Hilton. I hope that was an uplifting episode for you as it was for me. Really appreciate John's effort of of focusing on these doctrines and articulating them in a way that is so enriching. Again, I encourage you to go check this book out. It is uh, not just an Easter book, it's an everyday book because uh, the crucifixion is an everyday sacrifice for all of us. Again, it's Considering the Cross by John Hilton. And remember, if you know someone who'd be a great fit for the How I Lead segment, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and submit your suggestion. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.